Today we continue our uh, lesson um, about being single. As a church, we talked about being married for four weeks, and we got everybody where you're supposed to be, right? Uh, and singles, you're so much further along, it only takes two weeks for you, right? Uh, actually, what we're trying to do in this series is talk about what to think and also what to do. And I thought about that this week, uh, read a lot, studied a lot, got a lot of input from you, and I appreciate that. The church is wonderful. church is wonderful, but sometimes, sometimes I think we miss the mark. And this study has opened my eyes. I love the way that we bless people as a church when they get married. Two of my daughters are married. And you as a church gave them a bridal shower. That's a wonderful tradition that we have to bless young couples. It's a beautiful expression of love and well wishes. Um, it's, just, it's just great. And my family has been blessed by that. In fact, I thought about that. We're talking 30 to $40 per dinner plate. Amazing blessing. You know, we're talking fill up a U-Haul kind of amazing blessing. And some of you have been a part of that. Many of you give to those, and you know how nice that is. I remember thinking about that. It's enough to make you want to get married just to go and register and get all that stuff, you know? But we don't do that for those who are singles. There's no showering of gifts for them. You know, a young adult can make a move to a town on their own. It takes a lot of courage. They don't know anybody. Or maybe they buy their first home. Now, if you're married, we throw this huge U-Haul worth shower. But if you're single, you've got to buy your own toaster. You know, what does that say when it comes to what we value as a church and for what singles that deal with? They look at that and wonder, okay, maybe we missed a mark on that. Here's what I've learned. Single people are very aware that we live in a married world. It is a couple world. Now, those of us who are married, we don't see that as much. We're not aware of that as much. But those who are single are very aware of that. And they see things the rest of us do not some of you remember David Hall. David Hall and his family were a part of this church for years and years, but David took a job at Harding University, and it started in January, but they decided, if you remember, the family didn't move until May, when they could finish the school year, sell the house, and so David left in January, got a temporary place to live, and, and so he would work 12-hour days, new job, and he said, you know, I didn't really miss my family a lot when I was working so hard. It was kind of good in a way, because I could just pour myself into my new job. He said, but the time when I couldn't make it back home to visit with the family on the weekends, and I had to stay there in Searcy, he said, the times I felt the loneliest was Sunday morning walking in the church alone. He said, I would walk in, and he said, everybody seemed to have a family to sit with. Everybody had a couple, or the couples were sitting arm in arm, or somebody there saving them a seat. He said, but when I walked in, he said, that was the loneliest moment of the week for me. What I learned from those who are our own singles is that's true for them all the time. For David, it was temporary until his family moved. But for those who are single, Sunday morning, coming into worship or any kind of church activity can be the loneliest feeling. I've learned much through this study. I've read several books, articles, and sermons. I've especially been grateful 
for so many of you who are single who have given me some firsthand advice and some stories of things you've been through, and I'm going to share some of those today. And I hope we all, like David Hall and his family, we can learn from each other. Again, this message has two parts. Last week, we studied right thinking, the right theology, what to think about uh, marriage, and it's important to have the right kind of thinking. This week, we're going to talk about application, both for those who are single and those who are married. But first, I'm going to do a quick review. If you weren't with us last week, just a quick review. First, what does the Bible teach? We started in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Look on the screen there. The Lord God said, you remember this verse, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. God did not say that Adam is not a whole being, so I will make someone a wife to complete him. He didn't say that. He didn't intend to communicate that. A spouse may complement their mate, but they don't complete their mate. And Jesus honored marriage, and he upheld the high, uh, uh, cater, uh, the high standard of marriage, but he also said it's not a requirement. You may choose to remain single, and that's okay. We spent most of our time, though, with Paul's teachings in 1 Corinthians 7. Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I will spare you of this. And we studied three concepts. First, the goodness of singleness. And it is good. And Christianity upheld that single adulthood was a viable way of living. In fact, it was very radical and that it did this. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul teaches that being single is a good condition. It's blessed by God. And in many circumstances, it may even be better than marriage. And as a, as a result, the early church did not pressure those who were single to marry. And especially those who were widowed, that they had to remarry, unlike their culture. In fact, they would support those widows who were qualified and needed help. The gospel and that hope of the future kingdom de-idolized marriage. We also talked about that marriage is not the ultimate. That's our message of our culture today that we hear, that marriage is it, it's the ultimate. But it's not. Our Western culture especially tells us to put all our hopes in romance and finding complete spiritual and emotional fulfillment in that perfect mate. But what we study is that New Testament paints a different picture. That Paul uses marriage to explain not just marriage, but the relationship between Christ and the church, our relationship with God. Romance is a good thing. It's a very good thing. God created it, but it's not the best thing. It's not the ultimate. Some question the idea when we use the phrase gift of singleness, but more than one author I read pointed out that when Paul speaks of gifts in his writing, he's talking about an ability God gives you to bless others. And it's good for us to think about. And then we acknowledge the goodness of seeking marriage. The Christian perspective on singleness is almost unique because unlike traditional societies, Christians see singleness as good because the kingdom of God allows us to see beyond earthly relationships to what is ultimate. So today I want to share some advice. I want to share some things that we can do. And the first one is this. Understand that God wants you to be single. And by that I'm using that word to mean whole or complete. 
Miles Monroe wrote this, if you were able to catch hold of this revelation of the difference between being single and being alone, you will never again despise the state of being unmarried. Also, you will not marry or encourage others to marry based on wrong reason. God said it is not good for man to be alone. But he didn't record that Adam felt lonely. It doesn't say that. That means that you should not marry until you understand that you are a complete person. You're not half a person looking for the other half. In fact, we sometimes feed that wrong thinking by calling our spouse the better half. You've heard that phrase? They may be the better half of the couple, but they're not half of a person. And if you do not see yourself as a complete person, you're not ready to marry. If you do not know how much of a single person you are, then what are you going to be able to give to someone else in a marriage relationship? Some people believe that when you marry, you will solve your problems of being alone. However, and this is where I got some input from so many of you, some of the loneliest people are in marriages. In fact, if you are not unique, separate, and whole, loneliness is only magnified when you marry. And there is no one so alone as the lonely married person. The feeling of being trapped and there's nothing you can do about it. It magnifies the loneliness. And many people have thought and still think that getting married is the key to happiness. And I would argue that becoming a whole, complete person is the key to happiness. And the one who holds that key is not your forever someone. The one who holds that key is God Himself. I put on the screen, the goal of a child of God is to become the separate, unique, and whole person God created you to be. You are the vessel that holds the treasure. Paul wrote this, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. That treasure is Jesus, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And Paul also told us that the goal for each of us in Romans 8, 29 is to be conformed to the likeness of His Son who was the most complete person, the most single person, if you will, the most unique person who ever lived. You may not realize that's the goal. You may forget that's the goal. You may rebel against the goal, but that is still the goal If you are a child of God, to be conformed in the likeness of Jesus. Now, if you get married along the way, that is still the goal. If you remain single, that is still the goal. To be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. And I dare say, and I think you would agree with this, that women suffer more than men from this myth of singleness. Let Let me share a few things. Please do not equate... Never being married with never being chosen. And let me explain what I mean by that. Remember when you were in school and you needed to divide up into two teams and so you would have two team captains and they'd take turns choosing everybody until everybody in the class was on a team and there was that last person and they go, okay, you can be on our team. Like the last person who wasn't chosen. Sometimes we think of marriage as being chosen. And so if you're single, then you're not chosen. So you're like that last student and you have horrible memories and thinking about that kind of feeling like everybody was chosen, but not me. 
So then something's wrong with me, or I'm not as good as somebody else. I'm not as attractive. I'm not uh, able to bring more to the team than, than other people. Please don't ever think of never being married as being that last one that's unchosen. Here's the reality. How many people search for their completeness in other people? Or in other pursuits? It happens all the time. We can't always see it, even can't see it in ourselves. But it happens. I'll put this on the screen, your next one. It kept appearing over and over again. Idolatry. Idolatry. So avoid idolatry. Now we would never use that word to describe marriage or wanting marriage, but that word just kept appearing over and over and over again because marriage can become an idol, something we long for, something we think that's going to complete us. God, throughout the Bible, you remember our study on idolatry? Throughout the Bible, God tells us, hello, it's me. I'm the only one that can complete you. I'm the only one that can fill you. I'm the only one that can do that for you. And we say, oh yeah, God, I get that, but would you bring me a mate? And the perfect mate? That would be so good. And God has to just shake His head at that kind of thinking. Two misconceptions I want to share. One, some buy into the fairy tale kind of thinking that there's only one specific person for you. So the goal in life then is that you've got to find your one. You've heard that kind of talk, that kind of thinking. We say things, I just haven't found the right one yet. I'm waiting for my soulmate. Think about the danger of such thinking. That means the odds are one in five billion that you find the right one. Or we put a spiritual twist on it. I want to bring God into it and say, I haven't found the right one that God has planned for me. Or two, and I kind of referenced this earlier when we talked about David Hall and coming into church. It's so easy to look at couples, especially in a church setting. And we look at them and think, wow, they have the perfect marriage. They have the perfect kids. They have the perfect home. Isn't that great? I wish they had a marriage like that. My longtime friend would sometimes speak about people that we really don't know the real story. You know what I mean by that. We all know. We don't know the real story. And he would say, well, they seem happy. And we all know what that means. And then he would say, but I wonder if they have chopped up body parts in their deep freeze. We've watched too many of those 2020s, right? They seem happy. And it's so easy to come into a situation and you see that couple sitting arm in arm, not realizing that may be the only time in the whole week that they sat arm in arm. And that maybe they even argued on the way in. It's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking like the world, that you need somebody to complete you, that you're the last one, that everybody else has somebody special, that you're left out, you're left behind, that you're without. And yet, it is true. That being single can be very lonely. So that we don't need to just dismiss that either. And while marriage was the immediate answer for Adam's solitude, think about this. The story of Scripture from the first book to the last is that our relationship needs are also met through friends and through God's people. Not everyone needs marriage, but everyone needs friendship. And if you think about it, friendship 
can be one of the most selfless ways for you to grow because a marriage can so quickly become about what about me and what about me? But if it's a friend, you go into that relationship realizing that you need to serve them and be a good friend to them. Jesus and Paul both modeled a commitment to friendship. Jesus stayed close to the 12 friends, three of whom were even closer, and then one even closer than that. And you remember at his moment of need in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wanted those three with him. His friends, he valued them. Paul, when he would go on his travels, rarely went alone. He took his friends with him. And toward the end of his life, he asked for Timothy, his good friend, to come and be with him. There's no talk about not being married or wish I had a spouse. It's like, I need a friend. That's what I need. You've heard this before, but I'll remind you. Everyone needs a Paul. You need somebody in your life that's older, wiser, more spiritually mature, that can mentor you. And you can be a friend to them. And you can grow because of that relationship. Everybody needs a, a Barnabas, a peer. Somebody maybe your age group, or maybe they're single like you're single, they're married like you're married. Somebody you relate with because you're in the same life stage. And then you need somebody who is a Timothy. Somebody who's younger than you. Somebody that you are mentoring. Somebody that you are pouring into. Somebody that you are trying to develop. We're talking about friends. Well, here's number three. You must love yourself. Maybe that goes without saying, but I don't think so. In fact, I want to make that a point. If you want to do something about it, you must love yourself. Before you can love others, you must love yourself. Now, we're not talking about self-centeredness or pride, or selfishness. We have no problem excelling with that. What I'm talking about here is knowing, understanding, accepting, claiming who you are in Christ. Know that. Understand that. Knowing who you are is the first step in wholeness. And then accepting that is the second step. The living in it. One man said this, of all the couples I counseled, I found that generally, marriages in trouble are made up of two self-haters trying to love each other. Do you remember Jesus' words when he was asked about the greatest command? I put it on the screen, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, and following. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't even explain that. Because it's assumed that you get that. That you love yourself. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Same thing. He doesn't explain it. He just assumes you get that. See, we can fake people out by giving them a hug or a fake smile and pretend that things are better than they really are, especially in a church setting. And appear so loving. And yet we may be suffering from hating ourselves, not really loving ourselves. And no relationship is healthy or will work until you love you. Because if you don't love you, you're going to be looking for others to make up for that. And that's where that idolatry sneaks in again. So you're going to expect more from family and expect more from your friends and expect more from your spouse than they are humanly able to give. That's God's job. He wants to do that. The Word of God is simple. But sometimes we make it confusing. 
We get so consumed with pleasing people, trying to, to love our neighbors, and we just kind of skip over this one. And then in our frustration, we blame them for our own shortcomings. Think about this. A complete person, using that word the way we've been talking about it, a complete person is fun to be with. And they are attractive, not in a physical sense, but in the sense that you like to be around them. You want to sit with them. You want to talk with them. You want to be around them. They're attractive in that sense because you want to be around a person who's like that. They have a, a sense of themselves. They make it easy to be in their company. They're not arrogant and full of themselves. And they're not always pushing themselves down and being hypercritical. It's not about them at all. A whole person knows who he is. How God is working in his life. Why she is at a certain stage in a job, a setting. And they're at peace with that. And none of that is determined by marital status. None of it. It's about your relationship with the Lord. It's about owning it. Believing what the Bible says. And accepting that. You can only love people to the extent that you love and accept yourself. Tim Keller wrote this, If you still spend time beating yourself up because you are single, you are giving in to the worldly culture and you have not allowed Jesus to affect your worldview. So let me give some advice. Some advice to those who are married. We'll go first to those who are married. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. First, number one, develop a sensitivity to grief and isolation that some singles bear, especially the divorced or widowed. I'm thinking a married person just pushed that button and doesn't want to hear this. Actually, I don't know what that is, but if somebody will check that out, if that's something we need to deal with, we will, but otherwise I'm going to keep going. But develop a sensitivity to the grief and isolation that some singles bear, especially the divorced and widowed. I mentioned last week, I read several books and, and different articles. Betty Bender was one of those, taught with her as well. She said some widows like being assigned to the widow's group, but the church is supposed to be a family. When an earthly family loses a mother or father, we don't exclude the spouse who was left, but continue to include him or her in the family activities. And then she wrote about a couple in our congregation who invited a mixed group of adults to come over for a game night. Some single, some married. She said, two of the widows told me how much they enjoyed that. Being in a group where they were not set apart, but had the opportunity to mingle with other couples. And then she explains, widows' luncheons are a very sweet gesture, but again, it sets us apart. One widow said, I'd much rather be invited into their home for a meal with their family. We widows long to be included. For those of you who know Betty Bender, you've probably heard her say these very things. In a family, we do not ostracize someone just because they are single, and neither should the family of God. Well, number two, recognize hardships make many singles, uh, the, the hardships that many singles bear. They don't have somebody else. One of our members said, even just taking your car to the shop, you feel like you've got to inconvenience somebody. If you're married, you've got somebody who can say, hey, I'm going to go early. Come pick me up. We don't even think about that. For those who are single, they have to think a lot about those things. Of course, on a, on a more deeper level, the Bible talks about 1 Timothy 5.3, about financially supporting those qualified widows. Number three, be proactive in offering friendship. You go first. You, you, set the, you set the tone there. Maybe even adopting their children. 
One author said this, We who are busy with our own families are many times insensitive to the needs of singles. Our concern for one another should particularly include those who are going it alone. Since death is unavoidable, even those even though it may be unexpectedly premature in many ways, it's easier to cope with than divorce. And I heard that many times. The only group in the church more ostracized than widows or widowers is divorced individuals. Not only are they without a mate, but they have many burdens that make their life hard, sometimes almost unbearable, except for knowing that God and His love does not exclude them. So those of us who are married, we can be a friend to those one author described how we inadvertently avoid those who are widowed or widowed or, or divorced. Sometimes we don't know what to say. And so we say nothing. And they sense that. Christians are directed to invite one another into each other's lives, and that includes homes. First Peter 4, 9 says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer them into your lives. Sometimes that means your home Maybe when you're going out to eat, we are to treat one another as members of the same family. Let them see into our lives. How about some advice for those who are single? Number one, forgive those who hurt you and let go of bitterness. That may not be you, but if that's you, that needs to come first. Because anger is a poison that will only kill you. And if you've got that kind of anger, everybody sees it, even if you cannot Number two, don't wait for life to begin. Don't think that when I get married, then life will start. Be the person people want to be with. Don't always be complaining about being single or how everybody just ignores you. Nobody likes to be around any kind of complainer, but especially that kind. You be the friend. You initiate the conversation. You volunteer to serve. You jump in there. Don't wait to be asked. Don't wear the victim card. Betty Bender talked about a time where she was leaving this church and, and two couples were going out and one couple said to the other, hey, you want to go grab something to eat? And she went home alone. And she felt very single. I didn't tell her, same thing's happened to me before. And I was married. That's not being married or single. That's just people being rude. And none of us should do that to anybody, but don't play the victim card with that based on your marriage status. Betty writes, widows also have a responsibility. They need to reach out, make themselves available by continuing to work in the church. Still take part in activities. Invite people into their home, even if it's for just for a cup of coffee or a glass of tea and a cookie. When I read that quote from her, I remember the time where she invited me into her home. And I saw the picture of her deceased husband. In fact, saw several of Dwayne. I never met him, never knew him. But I was invited into her life. She took the initiative. Number three, find an accountability group to help you remain pure. That may not be a challenge for you, but in a marriage you at least have a spouse that can help with that. But if you need that, get that. And then number four, I feel compelled to share this. Do not allow yourself a deep emotional involvement with an unbelieving person. Not everybody agrees with this. But the Bible everywhere assumes that Christians will marry Christians. For example, 1 Corinthians 7.39, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. 
And other passages like 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And that's not just a New Testament concept. In the Old Testament, there are numerous times where the Jews were told not to marry a non-Jew. And you might think reading that, that that's actually saying you've got to marry within your race. But upon closer examination, you realize it wasn't so much a race thing as much as it was a faith thing. Like in Numbers chapter 12, where Moses married someone from another race. God was not concerned about that. He was always concerned about those who married a non-believer. Think about it. If Jesus is central to you, then an unbelieving partner cannot fully ever understand you. He doesn't get what gets you. She doesn't get what drives you, how you make decisions. No one knows completely somebody before they marry. We know that. But when you share this kind of commitment to Jesus, it automatically puts you on the same foundation of your values and your core, how you see life, what navigates your being. And if your partner doesn't understand that now, that's just the tip of the iceberg once you get married. It's a huge part of you. Your identity will forever be a mystery to them. They won't get it. Or they'll be frustrated by it and say, man, you're kind of nuts about that Jesus thing. And it'll drive you apart. If you do marry someone who does not share your faith, one or two things happen. One is that you more and more will lose your transparency with your spouse. As you continue to serve the Lord and grow in Him, you can't share that with your spouse. You'll think about Christ when you're watching a movie. You'll think about your values when you're making a decision. You'll think about something you read in the Bible that week. You'll think about how you're growing in the Lord, and, and you can't share that with your spouse if they don't share that belief. And so without, it or, without knowing it or not, you just kind of pull the curtain down, and it separates you as a couple. You'll be forced to hide it. Or the other worst possibility is that Jesus will no longer be central in your life as your relationship with that one who does not believe grows your relationship with the Lord will take a back seat you won't decide that but it happens you just demote Christ in your life both of these possible outcomes are terrible of course that's why you shouldn't deliberately engage into a relationship on a deep emotional level with someone who doesn't believe. And then number five, be content. Be content whatever the circumstances. Never married, widowed, divorced, married. Be content. You know the verse, Philippians 4, verse 11 says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Does that concept not apply to our marital status? Be content. You know, life rarely ends like a Disney movie, or any movie for that matter, where the guy always gets the girl and they, they ride off into the sunset happily ever after. In fact, oftentimes it doesn't end that way. 
But I want to close by sharing a piece from author and blogger Sarah the Barge. She wrote the book, The Invisible Girl. She's a follower of Christ. She's in her 30s, never married. So let me just share what she wrote. The last time I was in a relationship was a month before I sold everything and set out on this grand 18-month nomadic travel adventure of riding, speaking, and spending three months in West Africa. The breakup was amicable, ending in a less than serious relationship, and I've continued to be friends with the guy. After that, I measured how long I went without being kissed. By weeks? Then months? Now it's been more than a year. Last week, I was staying at a hotel when a very handsome gentleman approached me in the lobby. We started chatting. Then he asked if, he'd, if I'd meet him later for dinner. I said, sure. For three magical hours, we sat in a dimly lit restaurant talking about our stories and our families and our occupations. I learned that he was a Marine, spoke fluent French. He was now an investment banker in New York City. He had sophisticated taste and incredibly good looks. To put it simply, he was my dream man. Except for one thing, he didn't love Jesus. We left the restaurant and took the elevator to the floors our rooms were on. We got off the elevator. He gave me a kiss and whispered, come back to my room with me. I knew I needed to be immediately decisive. I want to, but I'm not going to, I said firmly. He pulled me close to him. Why, he whispered, resting his lips on my ear. He was a good six inches taller than me, so I had to stand on my tiptoes to reach his ear because, I whispered back, I like you a lot, but I love Jesus more. I kissed him on the cheek, and then I walked away. When I got back to my room, I locked the door, and then I cried because sometimes life as a single person, especially a single person who lives on the road, is intensely lonely. And waking up next to someone seems like a comforting thing because I keep praying for God to bring someone just like that, plus loves Jesus, into my life. And God hasn't, at least not yet. I cried because it would have been so easy and no one would have known. I cried for how easy it is to doubt that God's best really is best. And I cried with relief because I would wake up the following morning with confidence and integrity instead of shame and regret. Sitting in a hotel room in a bathrobe watching season seven of The Office alone on a Friday night isn't the stuff romantic comedies are made of. And yet, with each choice I make, I'm telling a story. It's not always a glamorous story. It doesn't have nearly as much romance as I'd like. It entails making sacrifices that only God and I know about. But by God's grace, I hope it's a good one. And then she writes this, and if my dreams don't come true, if I never get married, if I never get to write another book, if my writing doesn't make it to the New York Times list, it'll be enough for me to be known for one simple thing, Sarah the Barge, the girl who loved Jesus more. I want to close with some challenges, some tough challenges. And whether married or single, the question is this, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? There is a psalm, Psalm 81.10, I hope you know this verse, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Look what he says here, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. 
God promises you this. I will satisfy you. I will be enough. So let me challenge you. If you are married, make Jesus the very center of your life. If you are married, you make Jesus the very center of your marriage and you encourage those who are single. But if you're single and you're not in a relationship, you make Jesus the very center of your life. Period. Don't play the victim. Let Him be your source of fulfillment. If you're single and you're in a relationship, I challenge you to make Christ the very center of that relationship. If you're single and you're sexually active, I want to challenge you to stop. That is not God's design. That is not God's plan. Honor God with your choices. When we die, or when the Lord comes back, and we're standing before Him, the only relationship that matters is your relationship with Jesus. And the question will be, do you love Jesus more? Our invitation song is you to answer that. If you've never yet Claim salvation through Jesus. We have water ready so we can wash you clean. Baptism does that. It puts you in contact with the blood so that you can be a part of His spiritual family. That He can begin to feel you like no one ever can. Or if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing?